I just tried to look for a different path all the, all the time. And I think that like one thing that I did have was that I have this obsession with cookbooks, you know. I've learned to cook from cookbooks. I haven't learned to cook from chefs. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The path to success is different for every person. The road we travel has turns, dips and bends to test our resolve and nurture our development. And especially when it comes to hospitality, the path many take to their full-time career has many forks in the road. Luke Wakefield is the head chef of Balthazar in Perth, Western Australia. Luke, how are you going? Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Lots of uh, Australia in bits and pieces has experienced all sorts of lockdowns and Sydney currently still is in a lockdown, but what's it like in uh, WA at the moment? WA seems to be uh, booming um, as a a little, um, you know, sort of hospitality hub uh, at the moment. Um, Obviously, that pressure is felt a little bit more with that, that stream of international uh, people arriving and um, obviously with their experiences in hospitality. So um, I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a grab what you can um, in terms of um, staffing over here at the moment. But in terms of uh, customers, um, it seems to be, it seems for, for, for a lot of venues, it seems to be very busy um, and um, it's quite a successful time. Um, lots of venues opening up. Um, lots of obviously, some, you know, some places closing as well. Um, but uh, for us at Balthazar, the things have, uh, have never been better. We're we're busy every single day. Um, every night we're we're fully booked. Um, so yeah, it's it's um it's been obviously a bit of a challenging time. Obviously, there's always the threat of a lockdown just around the corner. We've definitely had a couple uh, ourselves in WA. There's been, uh, you know, these moments where you've had, you know, a whole week's worth of some produce come in on a Monday and then that night you've got to close, you got to lock it down, you know. So there's, it's been uh, some pretty stressful moments and um, a lot of sort of working out what we're going to do with some things. Um, but I think in comparison to, well, definitely the rest of the world, but obviously also to some of the Eastern states, um, we've been very lucky. Um, over this over this um, past uh, year and a bit, um, in, in regards to COVID, um, we had obviously had our big lockdown um, at the very start. Um, but for me, I have five kids at home, so to have that opportunity to be with them over, you know, uh, I think it was around six weeks, and and sort of just do nothing but be with them. Um, to be honest, it's probably one of the greatest moments in, in my life uh, in terms of being a father. So, um, you know, got to cook with my kids every day and got to just sort of really, just really find out who they are. I think like when you're, when you work in hospitality, your, your, your family almost seems to come second, you know, and um, I think for a lot of people and especially for myself, it sort of made a little bit of a shift in the balance around um, what was important. You know, and um, what what was really um, what really you know what what you actually like live your life for, you know. I think a lot of people who are, are very ambitious in hospitality, they it's work, 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 you know, and and focus, you know. And um, I've definitely had that path, you know. The my three older kids, um, I rarely saw even saw them grow up. Um, so to to really have that moment in time last year to sort of just be completely submerged in in their lives was uh was truly beautiful actually to be honest given the impacts that it's had on the hospitality sector are you, are you surprised about the boom that you've experienced sort of once um, you've cleared away from the lockdowns well we this has obviously been a, a bit of a topic of conversation amongst a lot of people um especially over here you know around what why is like this but i mean the only conclusion that we can come to is that a lot of people are usually saving their money to go overseas you know and um people just want to people just want to have fun people just want to be uh stimulated on their weekends and their time off you know and i think um being able to go out and dine and you know have a great meal and sort of you know try some nice wines and, and sort of go out in town is is probably the the next best thing you know i think um you know, in, in the Margaret River region and Denmark and things like that down south, um, they're, 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 
they're seeing a massive boom in, in the in trade um, purely because people want to sort of get down there because yeah like they, they can't go anywhere else um, or they're, they're maybe they're a little bit more reluctant to book flights over east and things like that just purely because they just don't know when 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 there's going to be a lockdown or things like that so um, yeah I would, I would put it down to people's boredom to be honest <laughs> <laughs> Your career has gone down many roads um, and it's quite fascinating, but what was the food like for you as a kid and what triggered an interest in, in hospitality? You know, when I, so I, my mum and dad both came from very big families. Um, my, my dad comes from a sort of uh, an Irish um, and Danish kind of background uh, and English as well, obviously with the last name Wakefield. Um, and my mum was from a sort of, yeah, sort of same English and sort of uh, Irish kind of background as well. Um, but both big families. My mum was one of eight. My dad was one of six. So every gathering was massive. You know, I have cousins that are all the same age as me from, uh, you know, multiple aunties and uncles and things like that. So there was lots of experiences like that. But there was always sort of like a, a gathering around food. Um, on my mum's side, it was always a sort of a picnic where everyone sort of brought food and we went to a certain park or we went to some sort of beach and everyone just sort of sat around in, in their little, um, you know, picnic chairs and the kids just had a play. And, and then at my dad's side of the family, my mom, uh, his mum was like the the real matriarch of the family, you know, and she she was always about food, you know. She was always cooking something and there was always a slice or some sort of cake that was there to, to be eaten and... Um, I think, uh, you know, in my, in my early years of, um, of sort of, you know, uh, you know, enjoying food, um, it was, it was a couple of influences. You like my nan uh, from my dad's, like my dad's mom, she, she grew up in a guest house, uh, and restaurant on the South coast. They had the first sort of, uh, I guess like sort of B&B, uh, in Sussex Inlet. Um, my great great grandfather was uh basically like um sort of take took hold of that land when he came here from denmark and established he was a fisherman kept brought his brothers over here and um they opened up a a um a guest house called uh, um uh, christian's mindy or mind uh, which was basically a memory of christian who was one of the brothers who actually died at sea um after swimming well he, he died from um uh, he, he died from uh, hypothermia after swimming back after his ship uh, turned over, and um, he yeah he's he's buried down there. And um, then they opened up across the across the the canal um, or the inlet. They opened up another place which was called uh, Homedale, uh, and this was basically like a little restaurant which was down there and um, serving sort of German, Danish kind of food. And um, so you know like so. The, my grandmother kind of had this sort of um, this drive to cook and to sort of nurture and provide, um, you know, the, her family with sort of lots of food, you know. And um, when my grandmother died of bowel cancer in 2001, she was only a couple of years short of seeing me actually start my career as, as a chef. Um, but she, she kind of always felt it was really necessary to kind of hold on to her passion for food and, it was only if it was only only a couple of years uh, ago when my grandfather died that I actually came across. Um, there was everyone was going through all of the things that were there, and my nan had actually written like three or four books um, of her own recipes, all written in hand um, of things that she you know she'd got out of uh, you know country women's association uh, books, wow. and but also like uh, you know recipes from her, her from her mother and. Um, you know, things, little clips of things that she'd cut out of magazines and things like that. But what, what we found in there was that these, we found these little pockets of memories for my dad in terms of the little things that he would eat when he was growing up as a kid, you know? And, um, what was really, what was really amazing about that was just to be able to find these certain things and talk about that with dad and he'd be like, Oh wow, I remember this, you know, this passion fruit slice or it would have been, you know, maybe it was this, this ginger cake or something like that. And to be able to to be able to make that and, and eat that. And, and, you know, during lockdown last year, I did a lot of this sort of looking through this book and, and seeing some of these things. And my, I didn't realize, but my grandmother was obsessed, you know, she was obsessed with, she was obsessed with like, she wrote down like eight different recipes for how to make ice cream at home without an ice cream maker, you know, like in different kind of ways. And, and, uh, and, and I was like, shit, you know, like I didn't even 
think that this was a, a part of like who I am. But what I come to realize was that actually, like I did have a few, I had a history in, 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 in my family around like, um, you know, the love of food, you know, but then, uh, also for me, um, you know, my, I didn't always want to be a chef. I, I, at one point I always wanted to be a vet. I always loved animals. Um, but I didn't, I really struggled at school. I really, uh, you know, school was kind of difficult for me. I was, I was a little bit of a fat kid, you know, you just get teased all the time and things like that. I always loved eating. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had the brains to, to do what I wanted to do, but I just didn't have the drive, you know? And I thought, I thought, you know, when I got to year 11, I thought, uh, I just, I, I don't want to have to go home and have to, to put my head in books as well as have my head in books when I'm at school, you know. But um, I guess like for me on my, my mother's side, like um, my grandfather – funnily enough, was always seemed to be cooking when I was around him. He died when I was eight uh, from lung cancer. He uh, he was a brickie his whole life. He had eight kids. He obviously worked his ass off seven days a week, um, had a had a history of, of drinking um, as when he was uh, younger, when my mum was uh, sort of growing up. But by the time I'd come onto the scene as a, as a young kid, he just sort of stopped all that shit and he was kind of in this – part of his life where he was uh trying to do all the right things you know and trying to um you know pay it back i guess so he was always the one that would be uh you know t- um, you know cooking food at night time and things like that and there was nothing ever special but it was like you know maybe it was salmon rissoles or you know my favorite thing and even now you know shepherd's pie you know it was always something that he'd be cooking and it was always so simple right and um but uh it made me believe that there was nothing wrong as a as a as a, as a man to cook you know, and because I think you know, when you, when you, when you grow up in in this in, you know, my parents' generation, where there's so many, where there's that just that typical stigma of you know the woman stays at home and and cooks and cleans and looks after the kids and the man goes to work, um, you know, there's um, there was you know it's it was not considered a good thing or not considered the. the 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 normal passage for a man to to cook at home and things like that. So I think I I took a little bit of that with me as a confidence that there was sort of nothing wrong with that, you know. Um, in fact, like as I've got older now, I've come to realise that there's actually a, a, there's a lot of things that we've lost as a society with you know the the change in in uh, in um, how the family dynamics work. And I don't get me wrong, I very much welcome um, you know women being in the workplace and I think it's an amazing thing to see like uh, you know more and more women working in kitchens and women becoming you know executives of business and things like that but what from a food perspective what I think is really a shame is that we've lost this kind of passing on from generation to generation that that ability to cook and that ability to make um, things with with fuck all you know what I mean? Like, like go down, go down to the butcher shop. Go to your kids. Go down to the butcher shop. Go and get some, um, you know, some lamb's liver, and um, go and get some of, uh, you know, go and get some tripe because we've got no money. But I know how to make something that we're all going to enjoy to eat. You know, and and I think like there's a, there's an aspect of that of our culture that that we've lost. You know, because there was always this line of of, of passing on from family from generation to generation um, to the, whoever was cooking that. This was gonna that that that's what you needed to know in order to be able to be able to not spend a shitload of money on food because uh, and I guess like for me when I as I was growing up um, in my family we didn't have a lot of money when when I was growing up my my dad was a industrial chemist um, by trade and he was sort of you know we had he had, they had kids when they were quite young. Um, my we my sister was born when my mum and dad were twenty and twenty one, and I came along when they were twenty six and twenty five. So they were still in these kind of like formative years of their of their lives, you know, in careers. My mum stayed at home when we were growing up, so we only had like a single income. Um, and so things that we would eat would be very basic, you know, mum would make like tuna mornay with, uh, a can of like chicken and mushroom soup and a can of tuna mixed together with some, with some pasta put in the oven, you know, or yeah, shepherd's pie, which is still one of my favorite things that, you know, like food was simple in my house, you know, um, mum used to burn the shit out of everything, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but then, but then every now and again, mum would just come up with this stroke of genius of just like just things that would just be so delicious. You know, I remember the first time, um, you know, mum made pumpkin soup once and she put peanut butter in it and we were just like, mum, 
what the hell are you doing? You know, and and I think about it now, and I think you know, putting peanut butter inside a pumpkin soup, well, it gives it that satay flavor. It's actually quite delicious, you know. But I didn't think about it like that back then. We we're just like, mom, you're crazy, you know. And but yeah, like you're saying, like your mom, mom sometimes would, she would just have these strokes of genius. She would never follow a recipe. She would refuse, you know. So some, so you know, nine times out of ten, she'd make a cake and it'd be shit. Do you know what I mean? But then one time she'd make a cake and I just feel like you couldn't buy that at a shop, you know? And, and, and as, um, you know, my mom and dad, like I said before, like, you know, had no money when we we're growing up and, and, you know, mom and dad's, uh, you know, special night in was watching the bill, having a packet of cheesels and drinking like a $7 bottle of summer wine, you know? And, and that was, that was their special night in, you know? And, um, you know, you know we didn't even realize that when we were growing up. Um, but then we moved around quite a lot as a kid. Um, we dad got a job in Darwin, um, helping to open up a, a, a um, like a chemical plant up there. Uh, so we lived up there for two years, and um, that was really cool. And then we moved back to New South Wales, and and then um, dad lost his job, and then we he found another job in in Adelaide. So we moved to Adelaide for for a year, and um, and then six months later, dad had lost his job again, and and then. It was during this time that dad didn't have a job for six months and and him him and mum were at home and yeah, they fought a little bit, but at the same time, like dad started to become interested in in, in food and, and um, you know, it was the first time I ever tried uh, you know, sushi was uh, during this time and the first time I ever tried like homemade bread. First time I'd ever seen my dad make a sponge cake. You know, um, we, we got to sort of, dad, dad had kind of always just been at work, you know, and then for this six months, which would have been a highly stressful time for my mom and dad was actually like a, it's actually some of the more memorable moments that I've had as a kid, you know, where seeing, having dad at home all the time. And I can relate this a little bit to kind of how I think my kids will probably remember like lockdown last year is, is that time when dad was at home and we were making, I was making croissants at two o'clock in the morning and, and, you know, um, baking bread fresh every single morning and trying to be like, right, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to just not leave the house and we're going to just make shit, you know? And, um, I think, uh, you know, uh, it was a really cool time. And I think that also helped me instill in me a, a, a sort of a bit of an interest in cooking and realizing that it wasn't just a woman's job. It was actually like something that everyone could enjoy doing. Um, and then we moved to Western Australia um, when I was about 13. Um, went to school um, in Don Craig, uh, which is in the northern suburbs. And, um, yeah, just just really struggled at high school. Um, really sort of found it hard to kind of to uh, try and see what was important. I think when you grow up as a – I think I think all kids see this, but, you know, there's a, there's a hierarchy in high schools where – you know, you have the popular kids and the not so popular kids and the ones in between trying to fit in, you know, and um, I was definitely one of those ones that tried to fit in. Um, so I think like I did a lot of, I think I just enjoyed eating, you know, I think I just got home and it was just, you know, just, just like to just eat food and things like that, you know, and I got to a point where um, in, when I was in year 11, um, you know, I had this, got pretty shit report cards all the time and, and then had a, had a report card come in and, and my home economics teacher had requested an interview and mum was like, Oh, what have you done now? You know? And I was like, shit, I don't know. So like they went in and, and my teacher at the time, her name was uh, Rosemary Woodell. She um, sat down with my mum and dad and said, look, like Luke, I wouldn't recommend that Luke do anything else um, with his, with his uh, career path apart from cooking. She said, I have, I have a um, person who um, is a member of a private gentleman's club in, in the city who, um, who I can uh, pass on uh, his details to, to the kitchen in there and we could potentially get him an opportunity to do an apprenticeship in there. So the next week I was there with my mum at uh, 15 years old uh, sitting inside a private gentleman's club in the corridor um, and this, uh, this, this, uh, you know, 30 something year old, uh, English man with these big, long lamb chop sideburns and, uh, with a bald head and, uh, with a chef's jacket on came in and he was completely scary. And he, they took me upstairs and to, to meet the general manager and, the, and I sat down and they said, we're going to offer you an apprenticeship and, um, you know, we're going to 
we're going to try and craft you to be the best that you possibly can be. And, uh, you start next week. <laughs> and so, and so I just did, you know, and, um, I was, I'm forever grateful for what she did for me. I, I don't know where she is. I don't know what she's doing now. I'm sure she's retired now because she was pretty old back then, but, um, I'd always love to sort of thank her, you know, but I haven't had the opportunity to, but, um, yeah, I, I started, started my career, um, inside this private gentleman's club in the city. And, um, these guys were hardcore old school chefs, you know, though had both my, the sous chef and the head chef, um, they had both worked in uh, really amazing kitchens for really amazing chefs. Um, the head chef had been, had been the sous chef of the loose box at the time, um, who, who the, the owner was uh, Alain Fabreg, who's probably the only Australian French chef that has a MOF, um, awarded to him. And, um, this guy was hardcore, you know? And, um, so I learned how to turn carrots. I learned how to turn potatoes. I learned how to, um, do things the proper way and the traditional way, you know? And, uh, we did, you know, we did buffets with ice sculptures and, you know, we did, um, you know, we, peeled the ends of asparagus and things like this. And we made rounds of sandwiches with the little ends cut off the sides so that, you know, the guests could enjoy them in the private snooker room and all these kind of things like that. And it was just a completely different world. But I went from being sort of like a kid at school to then being completely surrounded by these, these men basically, you know, and um, with, with everything with, you know, with the, the kind of like hard knock, uh, approach that 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 you know thirty something men have you know and which is what I am now you know and um and uh, you just go from like full like from zero to full throttle like in terms of just being raised you know and then turn you know becoming into an adult you know and um it was pretty tough you know and and it was pretty um pretty full on and and uh, there was many times during that first year that I really thought about quitting and there was lots of times where I really. I would go home and I would just cry, you know, and, um, but my mum and dad were just rocks for me and they just like, they supported me. I remember like, um, every night that I would work like the night shift at, at, at this club, um, I would, the chef would leave and I'd be left to clean the floors and to wash all the dishes. And my mum and dad would drive up, drive down 20 minutes from Don Craig to the city and they would wait in the car outside to pick me up to the point where some nights I was there till like midnight. And I remember like a couple of nights, like my mom hearing the doorbell and she's like, Oh my God, who's this? It's like 10 30 at night going there. And my mom, she's like, Oh, do you want a hand? Do you want a hand? Luke? And I'm like, mom, mom, go back to the car. Like I'm going to, can you go away please? You know? But, um, I just, I didn't, re- I didn't really appreciate it back then. You know, that, that the commitment that they had put into helping me maintain my path, you know? Um, and then to show my appreciation even more, it was probably about a year later that I decided that, uh, actually I want to go and, um, move over to New South Wales. And, and, uh, my, my grandmother had already had died already, you know, a couple of years later. And, uh, I really felt like I wanted to spend some time with my grandfather and, um, uh, you know, wanted to sort of spend some time with my cousins that I had in New South Wales. So I actually like, uh, went and moved over to New South Wales and, and went and lived with my grandfather. Um, and it was just me and him and, um, every day he'd drive me 15 minutes out to, to, uh, just in between Barry and Nara. And I, and, uh, I was in this little restaurant, um, that was part of a B and B called uh, Woodbine, um, private hotel. And the chef at the time, um, who, who got me the, who gave me the job was Daryl Potter. And he had had restaurants up in Sydney, um, up in Potts Point. Um, and he'd moved down, uh, start of the family and he had a place called Riverdelly, which was in Nara and, He'd had an opportunity to open up this restaurant and it was basically just me and him in the kitchen. Um, and uh, as, as when, you know, on busy nights, we'd have have another chef that came from Riverdale to come and help us. And um, it was just me and him and we made everything bloody from scratch and we made it every single day fresh. You know, we didn't even have a freezer. Um, and uh, this guy was proper hardcore and he probably instilled in me this ethic, which is probably um, has been amazing for me in my career, but has also like been uh, has been like a, pun- a self punishment, you know, like he, he would get up before I am every morning. He would do his books. He would come to river deli. He would bake the baguettes so we could do our sandwiches. He would cook and do breakfast all day until about 2 PM. And then he would drive over to W restaurant, which is where I had been sitting there prepping since midday. He would set up, he would prep everything for the, for the main course uh, menu and do the desserts on the side. Cause it was just me and him. And we would start service at six o'clock. He would get out of his, 
out of his like shirt and put his chef jacket on. We would do service. And at 11 o'clock at night, I would start scrubbing down the kitchen and he'd be out the back drinking a, a glass of wine with his wife, you know, and this guy, this guy would have maybe four hours sleep a day. Um, and, uh, this guy was just, he was such, such, such a good chef. Um, I have like such a massive respect for this guy. Your career is um, marked by um, lots of travel and lots of different experiences from um, private catamarans to um, gentlemen's clubs to um, all sorts of things. Um, what sort of sparked all of the traveling and such a diverse range of chefing um, opportunities? I think when I was old, I think when I was younger, um, I think I was... I think I was too scared to work in amazing restaurants. Hey, I think like from my first year when I worked with those two chefs, I basically tried every single day to do whatever I could to avoid getting yelled at. And I think that like that, that, that made me a good chef because I would, I would obsess over it. If, if someone said, don't do that, I would, it would be my goal in life for that day to just not do that. Do you know what I mean? And it just made me, I, I just, I was obsessed with not being yelled at. <laughs> I just, I, I, I just, I was so afraid of it. Um, and that, that I just, uh, I just, yeah, I, I had so many opportunities when I was younger to like go and work with really amazing chefs and, and, um, I don't know. It, yeah. It's a really good question, man. But I, I, I just tried to look for a different path all the, all the time. And I think that like one thing that I did have was that I have this obsession with cookbooks, you know? And, um, I think that like, I've learned to cook from cookbooks. I haven't learned to cook from chefs. I've learned how to have, uh, I've learned how to, I've learned how to, um, I've learned how to work in a kitchen from chefs and I've learned how to work hard and I've learned how to, to handle the hours and to, you know, do all the crazy things that chefs do. But I think in terms of like, how to cook and how to do things. Um, probably the, the real turning point in my career came from when I finished my apprenticeship and I got offered a job working up in the Kimberley. Funnily enough, I was actually working in a private mental hospital at the time and a chef, uh, as a temp chef, basically. And uh, I was working in there for, I worked in there for about a year, you know. I just wanted to, I just wanted to work nine to five, you know. And uh, this guy came along who was also doing temping and he was like, oh, I just come back from working in the Kimberley. And I was like, oh, where's that? He's like, oh, you know, up north, you know. I was, and he's like, um, you know, he could see that I was really passionate about cooking, but I was working in a fucking mental hospital, you know. And, uh, you know, I'd make, I'd make like fresh pizzas, you know, for like the staff meals or make donuts and, you know, like just do all these things. And, and, um, and he was like, oh, you know, like, would you ever think about, you know, doing this, you know. And anyway, so had an interview and, you know, two months later I was – I was on, in at Fremantle Harbour, like you know, jumping on a boat to to go all the way up to the Kimberley, you know. And but, du- but during that time, I took cookbooks with me. So I took like twenty cookbooks with me, and I built my menu around all of the things that I thought, "Well, oh, that looks good. Oh, that looks good. That looks good." And that was like these were books like Shannon Bennett's My View, and uh, you know, like um, you know. You know, Escoffier's like cookbook, you know, and and I was just like, no, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, and I would get up at 5 a.m. every morning on that boat, and I would be in bed by maybe 11:30 midnight, and from the waking hour, I was making breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, canapes, dinner, dessert, wash up, go to bed, and but I would cook things from all of these amazing books, and I would like, I wouldn't skip anything. So if I needed to make a stock four days beforehand, I would do it. Um, and I think during that time, over those two years, I just, I just turned into who I am. You know what I mean? I, I was on a boat by myself. Just I just come out of a relationship of five years. Um, I had a really lot of reflecting time. I'd done a lot of partying um, with my friends, you know, and I just kind of went cold turkey on life. And I just focused on cooking and that, that was all I did. I didn't, for the first year that I was up in the Kimberley, I didn't even get off the boat. I just, I got off the boat to, to stop working and to go up the broom and, and, you know, had that night off, but I never got off the boat to go and experience this up in the Kimberley. I never got off the boat to go and experience that up in the Kimberley. I was just inside that galley, just cooking stuff. And we had amazing guests on there. Like it was $15,000 for two weeks per person to be on that boat. So they, there was, these were people that had a massive high expectation of 
of what they were going to eat and things like that. Every single day was fresh fish. Uh, we would go and shuck oysters off the rocks, these massive oysters, you know. Um, we would get, uh, you know, fresh prawns. We would get um, we would get mud crabs. We would get, like, so many cool things. Uh, and I had to just work out what the hell to do with them. And so as I'm cooking these, you know, things for the first time, I'm, I'm drawing my, my inspiration from these amazing cookbooks and, you know, taking and trying to, recreate what these guys were doing you know and i think um i came back from the kimberley um that boat uh the company sort of like folded because it was part of a bigger company anyway i started working inside this uh uh you know french family's restaurant um called uh chez pierre um these the Echelaine family have been around for about 30 years in perth um as one of the you know sort of original sort of french families that did wining and dining um, I was working for these guys, um, and um, they were members of the Chandra and uh, which is a private sort of cooking, um, you know, uh, fellowship. I guess you could call it of these sort of people who sort of wear these uh, these ribbons around them, their their necks with all these fandangle medals and stuff like that and they have these sort of sort of there's chef members and then there's like restaurant owner members and then there's just rich people members and then like they just they just kind of like uh congregate every like you know month or so at people's restaurants and and you know wine and dine and things like that you know anyway they, they were holding this like young chefs competition and and uh pierre who's the owner came in one morning and sort of said oh any of you guys like be interested in doing like a cooking competition and it was myself and this other chef at the time and um, I was like, oh yeah, cool. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. You know? And I was like, didn't really think much of it, you know? And, um, we, yeah, had to go down to this TAFE in Fremantle and, and do this competition. And yeah, all the, all of the sort of, all the big dogs in Perth kind of had their little chefs like there to kind of represent, you know? And, um, I just fucking smashed them all, you know? And I didn't even really like think much of it, you know? But, um, I had just sort of played this game of, um, make it happen.com, you know, like I, up in the Kimberley, like we never could afford a regulator. So I do my sous vide cooking using the barbecue hot plate with a pot of water. And I just constantly change the hot water and check the temperature, you know? And that's how I, that's how I sous vide my massive beef fillet. Or, you know, if I needed to, you know, if, if I needed to make ice cream, I didn't have an ice cream maker. I'd have the ice cream in a, I'd have like a creme anglaise inside a bowl and I'd whisk it every 20 minutes, you know? So like, I wasn't afraid to just get in there and do it in these competitions, you know? And, um, so, um, but I also realized that people just wanted to eat food that was delicious, you know? So I, I just, um, yeah, I did this competition. I won, they flew me to Queensland, um, you know, I, I represented like WA and I won this one as well. And around that time, um, you know, I met, I met my wife, um, that year, you know, and, uh, we, we had a kid, we, we got pregnant, like probably within three months of us knowing each other, you know? And so, <laughs> so we, uh, we had a kid, we had a kid on the way. I was 23, she was 19. And, um, and the, the day before I flew to Finland to represent Australia, my son, Olin was born and, um, it was a bit touch and go there, um, whether or not I was actually going to be there for the birth, you know? Um, but yeah, so the very next day I flew out to Finland, uh, represented Australia and ended up placing fifth out of 25 countries, you know, and, um, from, you know, and these guys, the, the people who I represent or were uh, competing against, they're working in Michelin star restaurants and things like that. But, um, I just, uh, I know I just, just had a drive in me, you know, and, um, came back and, and, uh, did some time, uh, working for Steve Scafidi, who's a, who's a, a, a bit of a veteran in the hospitality industry over here. He's now currently the general manager of the um, Como Treasury Building, um, and uh, helped him um, sort of be part of his kitchen at Sentinel Bar and Grill when that first opened. and And then after that time, um, I I saw on online that uh, Daryl, like the the guy who I did my apprenticeship with, had um, it actually finished up and closed or sold his River Deli store in Nara. And um, I sent him a little email just sort of saying, you know, look, I have a lot of really fond memories. Um, around um around that that moment in my career you know and i just wanted to thank you and, and tell you that how special that was you know and um he ended up re- replying back and saying oh look actually i'm i'm actually going down to victoria to to um to become general manager of this uh private houseboat club which is in victoria and uh i'm, I'm gonna be looking for a head chef and just wondering what you're up to and whether you're not you you know you're at a point in your career where you want to be a a head chef, you know, and I thought, I think there was a moment where I, 
if there was ever a moment where I could learn how to be a head chef properly, it was probably with this guy, you know. And so, um, time my wife was for six weeks away from having our, our second kid, and um, and I was like, fuck it, let's go. And so we we moved to to move to Lake Eildon, uh, which is three hours north of Melbourne, um, and they put us up in a in a little tiny house which was uh, probably been around for about, I don't know, probably at least 60 years. It was, I think it was one of the Harbour Masters old houses originally. Um, this old derelict house overlooking the whole of Lake Hilden, sort of like a 180-degree view of the of the lake. And we lived there for three years. Um, and uh, I um, basically learnt from him how to run a kitchen because I think, you know, when you go from being a chef to being a head chef, you start your apprenticeship all over again, in my opinion. You it's you have to learn how to do everything. You know, it's not just about you have to you have to develop the maturity of um, realizing that it's not just about what you want to cook. It's actually about what's going to make money. It's actually about what what people want to cook. Uh, sorry, what people want to eat. Um, it's also about it's also about managing a team. Um, it's also about managing problems and things like that. So, um, yeah, I spent three years working with him and and doing amazing food there you know like again like when i was young i was super keen to prove myself um probably not in the in the most uh you know realistic uh platform to kind of like prove yourself but you know um being a club in victoria where it's very much like a parmigiana kind of like town um uh you know we had we have extremely rich people from like the, you know the the eastern suburbs of, of victoria this is their playground so they would come up on the weekend they'd want to eat a chicken parmigiana but at the same time they'd want to have something special to eat as well so i'd be doing things like you know um you know a whole fish cooked in the style of poor bacusas like in a pastry scales that i'd fill with like a scallop and prawn mousse that would be like baked in the oven to order that you know, four people would be sharing, served next to two people who were having a fucking parmesan and one guy having a steak. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I was just crazy, you know. Like I just didn't, I didn't get it, you know. Like I was, I was so, I was so like um, stubborn to wanting to do good food and prove myself that I had a certain standard that I just worked my ass off, you know. Like I would. I wouldn't care if I had to work all the way through the night. You know, there'd be many days where I'd work. I'd start work on Thursday, work through the night till Friday morning, keep working, work through Friday night, just work through the Saturday morning, you know, and wouldn't go home until Saturday night. Like I just, I just wouldn't go home. Just, I'll just keep working, just doing, just prepping for this function, prepping for that function because I wanted to prove to, to, to the general manager, Daryl, like who had, who'd raised me in, in, in terms of my opinion in, in being a chef that I was, um, I was equally just as good as he was, if not better, you know? And so, um, after three years, actually we, we left on really bad terms, you know? And, uh, because I got to a point where, you know, I felt disgruntled and things like that. Much of the, much of the thing, much of the lessons that I try to teach a lot of people now who are, who are starting up as head chefs, it's just like, take it easy do things simple because what's going to happen is you're going to work your ass off and no one's going to thank you and then you're going to hate it and then you're going to leave. And your integrity as a head chef is so important for your reputation because if you leave after three months, you'll fuck all. You know what I mean? You may as well have not even written in there that, that, that you did that job, you know. So um, so I, after three years, I had, had enough. I, I had a couple of options, people offering me jobs. But there was a guy um, in uh, in just on the outskirts of Geelong in Freshwater Creek um, uh, called Robert Pascoe. Now, he owns a business called Closed Loop. Um, and this is like a repackaging and recycling and sort of uh, minimizing waste company of all things. Anyway, he had, um, he had purchased a farm in Freshwater Creek and he wanted to um, basically show people where food came from. And so he wanted to... Um, he put veggie gardens in, he built this, this amazing building using only recycled materials. He'd had, um, uh, Yost Backer, like sort of, I think they're pretty good friends. They had had him sort of come and sort of help advise as to how they were going to put it all together and use these bits and use these bobs. And, and, um, we, I, after about three months of that had already been opening, I, I came and became head chef there and, um, we, 
we had a pretty cool, pretty cool year and a half of sort of. I lived on his farm, um, which was about about fifteen minutes drive away, which had its own pine plantation on there, where there would be slippery jack mushrooms and pine mushrooms growing in winter. And um, you know, we we would uh, only use produce which was uh, you know from from that suburb, or if not, like on the outskirts suburbs, you know. And um, got to sort of really um, experience the the true nature of sort of local produce and, um, and, uh, sort of just became obsessed with it. Um, and, uh, just really sort of just dive straight into it and, um, sort of started to learn about how to grow my own things and, um, how to just sort of minimize waste and, and, and use things that, you know, wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, would have gone in the bin once upon a time, you know, and, um, this was a really amazing time, but I, um, I started to grow, uh, you know, a little bit sort of tired of sort of working in a cafe, you know, this is, it was, it wasn't a fine dining restaurant or anything like that. It was a cafe, you know, and, and I think it's when you work in, work for people that don't come from a hospitality background, it's really challenging because um, they have their own idea as to what they want, but that doesn't always necessarily um, mean that it's actually capable to be done you know and i think that um there's uh when you work for people who come from hostility background they have that empathy and understanding of of when things go wrong you need to replace them or when things when things can't be you know done on a menu it's there's there's a specific reason and i think there was a lot of challenges with that um and um and then so i decided to um take this job up in Euroa, which was, uh, inside a 120 year old, um, old butter factory. And, um, it was, um, they did weddings on the weekends and then, uh, you know, during the week they sort of did nothing, you know? And so I came on board to sort of look after their sort of, uh, amazing sort of bespoke weddings that they did up there. Um, and, um, tried to sort of look at ways that how I could sort of generate business for them, um, during the rest of the time. And, one of the things that really sort of came to mind was on the weekends, they always did like little cakes and little pastries and things like that. And what it was something that I was interested in doing, but it wasn't really, I didn't really have the sort of patience to sort of sit there and make cakes every weekend and things like that. Because one of the things I really hate about places that, that sell cakes and things like that is that I only really like to eat a cake that's fresh. I hate seeing cakes going, you know, being made, being put in the fridge, being brought out the next day, bring back out again, and things like that. And for me, it's just like if you can't do it properly, there's no point doing it at all. So I try to think about ways of how we could make like little cake and pastry offering where it was sort of done fresh. And the only sort of real thing that I could kind of come up with that made sense for me was making like croissants and making pastries, you know. So I just went on this sort of self-obsessed journey of um, teaching myself how to make croissants. Um, and, uh, I spent, uh, every waking hour for about three months, um, just fucking up croissants and, 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 and then, and then getting better. I think I probably researched probably about 15 different recipes from all the books that I had and books that I bought. And what I basically did was, um, I worked out how many croissants you can make with one kilo of butter. And then I went along and I altered every single recipe so that it all added up to one kilo of butter. And then I went and worked out how much flour was in each one, how much sugar, how much yeast in every single one. And then I did a calculation and divided it all by 15 and found this average recipe that I used as my base recipe that I was going to do to basically learn how to like to basically establish as my croissant recipe dough. And, um, and basically, you know, made my own, you know, and um, we started uh, selling our pastries inside the shop. And then we started looking towards farmer's markets. Um, there was a really big uh, farmer's market called Violet Town Farmer's Market, which is just on the outskirts of Euroa. Um, and it got to a point where we were doing one or two uh, markets every single weekend on top of doing weddings, on top of me doing like a digger station dinner on Fridays. Um, but we got to a point where we were doing nearly up to 450 croissants like on a, at a market and, uh, you know, making like, you know, a couple of grand. Um, and, uh, it got like really crazy, you know, and, um, but it kind of, it coincided with the downtime of, of the weddings, which was around winter where we sort of decided that we, this shit was going well, you know, and we wanted to, let's expand, let's make a, let's make a croissant shop, you know, in, in the middle of your town, you know, and, um, 
and we so we did we um we started we started uh, renovating this little space we rented it we, the owner rented it we started renovating it um every waking hour that we could and we started to negotiate with this other place where we could start baking croissants and things like this and and it, and it was going it was going it was probably like a couple of weeks away from me when we were opening and um the relationship between myself and the owner just broke down and um i made her realize that what she was paying me in my salary probably wasn't um probably wasn't a smart move for her business um probably something that my wife wasn't too impressed when i told her afterwards but yeah there she actually made uh yeah she made me um she made me uh, uh redundant you know and um uh it was probably the best thing she probably could have ever done but also probably the hardest thing that i've ever had to listen to because i'd never lost my i'd never lost a job my whole career you know at all um and it was a real um it was a real kick in the pants you know and um it really made me sort of um have a a good hard think at myself and there was an opportunity to to take that place and and make my own croissant shop um with a couple of other people um uh, who were who were going to be part of it um but i just decided after sort of six years of being away from uh, my family in western australia that um it was time to go home at that point we'd had we had our third third child so we had three kids at the time and um you know we'd seen mum and dad and, and my wife had seen her parents you know maybe like once or twice a year for that over that time so um we wanted we, we decided to move back um and so i went on the, the hunt to kind of try and find a way to get back and try and find a job you know um and there was um, a couple of people who were opening up a restaurant on the um down south of of perth about a two hours south of Perth um, in a place called Eden of all places. And um, of all places, it was going to be next to a shopping center. Now I didn't know this at the time, but the people who were the owners were actually, um, they actually were, their family owned the shopping center. So they actually wanted to have this uh, business to kind of help boost the kind of um, the the commercial value of the place. So they flew me over um, from Victoria. I spent a week with them, um, you know, looking at produce around the sort of uh, south southwest region of WA and then at the end of it I they took me to their house and I cooked them a meal and at the end of it they said yep we want you to be our head chef and so we uh you know four weeks later we we moved back um I put L L my wife and the kids on a plane and then my dad flew over and we drove, drove our car back over and um we started up over there and, and um yeah it was great you know i was there for about nine months it was a 350 seat restaurant um you know pretty much every single chef that i had in my kitchen was a was an international student doing cookery so it was super challenging in terms of like trying to um you know maintain a team and, and things like that um i you know i still had this kind of hard working kind of mentality of um, and tried to instill this in people, you know, um, and uh, for some people it worked, for some people it didn't, you know, and um, after about nine months, you know, I kind of got to a point where um, I didn't I didn't really like doing it anymore, you know, and um, I think the direction of where the food had originally planned to be didn't, um, didn't come to fruition. Well, these days you're at Balthazar. Can you tell us about what you're doing there? Basically, like, you know, um, the food that we have grown into being at Balthazar is definitely not what it was when I first started. When I first started, I, I thought I needed to do food that other people who had amazing restaurants did and, and tried to replicate a, a kind of version of, of what that was, you know. And um, it just wasn't impressing. Um, it wasn't impressing anyone, you know. It wasn't impressing the owners. It wasn't impressing the customers. And, and I think that, like, this kind of food, you know, it, it comes from, unless you're doing it at a very small scale, it comes from teams of, of huge uh, numbers of chefs, you know, and um, you can't you can't replicate that. And so we sat down, we had some pretty hard conversations and we said, look, they said to me, look, you know, like we just got to use good produce and we've just got to cook it well and we've just got to keep it simple. And um, that's what we've grown into. You know, we've grown into a space where my obsession is not about, um, you know, how much tricked up shit can I put on the plate but it's about like I'm going to take this piece of meat and I'm going to cook it in a certain way and um, we're going to rest it in a certain way and we're going to serve it with some things that are familiar to people that have been executed extremely well and that it's incredibly delicious and that it can be served probably within six minutes of it coming on order and that's it. And we've gone from being a restaurant where on Monday nights we would do like maybe 25 to 30 people to where we do like some nights on Monday nights, 
90 to 100 covers a night. Um, and that's pretty much consistent. Um, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we'll do minimum 70 covers. This is a 60-seat restaurant, by the way. Um, and on Friday and Saturday nights, we can do up to 140 people. Well, what's a dish that you can tell us about that exemplifies what, what you're cooking at the moment? Um, to, okay, so we're doing, uh, at the moment, we're doing um, a caramelized onion tart where we make our pat brise um, every single day. And we roll the tarts out and we bake them fresh um, just before service every day. We fill them with a caramelized onion that we cook for about six to seven hours. Um, not by caramelizing the onions initially, but we actually cook them in water until all of the natural sugars come out of the, the onions. And you basically, you're cooking them inside this syrup that's been um, baited about from the, the sugar that's inside the onion naturally um, until it gets to that point where it starts to catch. We finish it with sherry vinegar. Um, and that goes in the bottom of the tart. We fill that with a custard, uh, which is made from aged cheddar, and then we once that goes into the oven and warms through, we we just we have um, basically deep fried at about 140 degrees in olive oil some walnuts until they're really fragrant. We let them cool down. We just great amount of that on top of the tarts, and then we just put freshly um, cut chives on top, and that's the dish. You know. Um, my mum uh, makes uh, these days. My mum and dad, going back to you know my 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 simple upbringing, my mum and dad have become proper gourmands. Like in this time, you know, um, they've gone from drinking summer wine to drinking really nice wine with wine fridges in their houses. But my mum and and dad, they make their own cheeses now. Um, they, uh, my mum, uh, makes her own nut oils now. Um, using a nut press in her house. Um, and uh, we use probably about three or four different nut oils on our menu. She makes nut milks for us. Um, we use like the nut mud- nut butters in certain things. But yeah, we, we have this little walnut oil dressing that's around the tuck. Um, we do a little, uh, another entree, which is a, uh, a Girello tartar, so not not a normal cut of meat to use for a for a beef tartar. We use the Girello, so it's quite quite firm. We cut it up into quite thick uh, cubes of meat. Um, we dress that with um, katsubushi, and we put some chives and some crispy capers inside that. And we serve that on a cauliflower puree, and we serve, uh, and we pipe a vitello tomato sauce with that as well. Um, so you have kind of like vitello tomato kind of like a style, but done like a raw. Um, but then for main course, you know, uh, we keep it really simple. You know, our, our beef fillet dish is a beef fillet with a potato puree um, with wilted spinach and a beef shoe that has pancetta inside it. However, our potato puree is made from incorporating beef fat that we collect when we're roasting our bones for our beef shoe that we allow to drip all over to all over our mirror plot as it's roasting. And then that, Mirapar infused beef fat, we strain off and we use that to put into our potato puree. So it has this full of umami. And then we make our beef shoe, the pancetta. It comes from the offcuts of our pork belly um, that we roast on the bone, that we turn into our own pancetta and then smoke. Um, and our spinach is, is uh, you know, cooked inside like the beef fat as well, you know. So it's about simplicity. It's about approachable food, but done in a way where it's smart um, and also it's interesting because as you probably know yourself, like, these days, if you want to keep chefs in your kitchen, you've got to make things interesting. You've got to, there's got to be a reason why they want to work in that kitchen, you know. And so, um, it's a it's a challenge. But um, yeah, I would say that our food is uh, it's, it's chef interesting. It's enough to attract chefs to work in my kitchen, but it's approachable that customers can familiarize themselves with it and enjoy it. Well, that sounds amazing, Luke, and we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Please keep in touch, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks for your time. Take care. Bye. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.